8. Acts 14 and verse 8, that's where we're at this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for its ability to change the direction of a person's life. We thank you that it gives us the content of what we teach, tells us what is important and what is not, tells us what to embrace and what to avoid. We thank you that it corrects us. We thank you that it puts us on the right path when we're on the wrong path, corrects our wrong thinking with right thinking, and trains us to serve you in righteousness. Thank you for its power. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study it together. And we pray you'd guide us in this study. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the other day, Kathy and I were having a discussion about a new book she's reading by Scott Sauls entitled A Gentle Answer. And she was uh, sharing with me that she was reading a chapter entitled The Death of Evangelism. And in it, Sauls cites some statistics from recent, in the last year or two, uh, Barna Group surveys about evangelicals, and the results are startling. Thus, the title, The Death of Evangelism. And what I thought about as we were discussing it, and she was telling me what he's saying, and if you'll permit me, I'll share with you a little bit of what he said. Uh, what was startling to me is, and what question came to me is, I wonder what Paul and Barnabas would think about this. I wonder what Paul and Barnabas would think about American Christians and the way they think about evangelism. Well, let me, let me just share with you from Saul's book. He said this, Have you ever been so positively impacted by something that you felt you must tell others about it? In the, in the Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, this kind of evan uh, enthusiastic sharing is called evangelism the proclamation of the good news with the goal of persuading others to receive it and orient their lives around it. And he says, there are many reasons for evangelism. Not all of them are religious. If we have a delicious meal at the newest restaurant in town, we will spread the, words to, the word to others that they must dine there too. Have you ever done that? You've gone to a new restaurant and you, you just can't wait to tell somebody else. This place is fantastic. You won't believe their French onion soup. That's how I know a good restaurant. It's got great French onion soup. Uh, and you want to share with everybody. And he mentions uh, if, if uh, you, you uh, uh, go on a particular diet, an exercise program, uh, a piece of music, a book, a poem, a painting, uh, and so on and so forth, he says, we are evangelistic about sharing that. We're enthusiastic about sharing those things with others. But then he says this, yet curiously, there is currently a glaring exception to the evangelistic impulse that we will want to tell others about the things that bring our lives the most meaning. This exception is that today, American Christians are often reluctant to express their enthusiasm about Jesus Christ with other people. Unlike Peter and Paul and the other disciples who preached boldly, 
confidently and joyfully from town to town. Unlike the Samaritan woman who couldn't wait to tell everyone she knew about her encounter with Jesus. Unlike so many believers around the world who will even risk their lives to get the saving message of Christ out to their neighbors, many American Christians prefer to keep their good news about Jesus hidden. In fact, some are not only reluctant, but also opposed to the practice of trying to encourage other people to trust and follow Jesus. He then cites a 2019 report from the Barna Group that an increasing number of Christians have entirely backed away from sharing their faith. Specifically, he says, almost half of millennials, those born between the early 1980s and early 2000s, that's our congregation mostly. That's why this is pertinent. Almost half of millennials who identify as followers of Jesus say that evangelism isn't just uncomfortable, but it's actually wrong. According to the report, 97% of Christians across four generations agree with the statement the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus at the same time 40%, 47% of millennials plus smaller but still significant percentages from the other three generations agree that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. I thought, wow. As I let that sink in, it's wrong to share your faith with, the expecta- with someone of another faith with the expectation that they will embrace what you're telling them and i'm thinking to myself is it possible that evangelicals today is it possible that believers today don't believe that people are lost and going to hell because that's what's on the line that's what's on the line or is it possible that evangelicals just don't care that people are lost and going to hell I can't believe that. I don't believe that. I won't believe that. But how else can we explain that we believe the greatest thing is that someone could embrace faith in Jesus Christ and yet the worst thing we can do is share with them our faith in Jesus Christ. And so that led me to ask the question, that I mentioned just a moment ago is I wonder what Paul and Barnabas would think about this. We have been going on a sort of travel travel log with them on the first missionary journey when God sent them out to reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ and how much they endured to do that And we will see in today's passage how much more they endure. I wonder what they would think about us today as American Christians. By the way, one other thing I thought about as I mauled over that report is that you and I have more to do in 22. That's my motto. We have more to do in 22. Well, what I like about the passage before us this morning, it's in the city of Lystra where we find Paul and Barnabas. 
The message to Lystra is pertinent for us today because it was a message to a pagan culture with little biblical knowledge. And that's the kind of culture that we face today. A culture with little biblical knowledge. A culture that is virtually pagan. The place that we start... Remember when Paul and Barnabas would go into a city, they'd find a, a Jewish synagogue and they'd begin with the Old Testament. But here in Lystra, we find that they can't do that because there is no synagogue apparently and there isn't anybody with a recollection of the Old Testament there. And I think that in a lot of ways, what the situation you and I face today is a lot like that. And so where we begin today is not with a common biblical knowledge. Where we begin today is there is a God who is all around us and exists and is alive and loves us and sent his son to die for us. That's where we have to begin. There is a God. Uh, there's a movie some of you may have seen, uh, the movie Rudy about a, a football player at Notre Dame University. And uh, one day he's, he's uh, confused about something, struggling over something, trying to make a decision about something, and he goes to one of the priest teachers there at Notre Dame, and the answer the priest teacher gives to him, uh, professor, gives to him is, I have learned two things in this life. Number one, there is a God. Number two, I am not him. That's where we start today. There is a God. There is a God. The third thing that I think about as I think about Acts chapter 14 is that there's a lot of religion and spirituality in Lystra, the city that they're in. There's a lot of religion. There's a lot of spirituality, but no truth. And I think we face a culture where there's a lot of spirituality, a lot of religion, but no truth, no obedience, no holiness. So I think Acts chapter 14 really is, is pertinent to us in so many ways. We read in verse 8 in Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. Now, how did Paul and Barnabas find themselves in Lystra? Well, you'll remember what happened is that at the closing uh, verses of last week's passage, uh, verse 5 of chapter 14, there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat and stone them, but they found out about it <clears throat> and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. By the way, they didn't flee so they could escape persecution. They left there so they could go to another place where they could continue to proclaim the gospel. Because you see, nothing stopped them. Nothing stopped them. It was that important that they get this message of life through faith in Jesus Christ, that nothing would stop them, not even persecution, both verbal, which is what we mostly face, and physical persecution, which we may face at some time in the future. Nothing 
could stop them. So they weren't fleeing so that they could escape persecution. They were trying to go to another place where they could continue to preach the gospel. And there they found this man crippled in his feet. Note the threefold description here. Lame from birth and he had never walked. He was in as bad a situation and as bad as a condition as you could be in. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Now, if that reminds you of an earlier healing in the book of Acts, one that was done by Peter in Acts chapter 3, that's exactly what Luke wanted you to remember. He wanted you to think back to what Peter had done in Acts 3. Turn back to Acts 3 just real quickly, where we read about Peter. One day Peter and John, this is verse 1, were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon, Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, just like Paul and this cripple in Acts 14 made eye contact. Then Peter said, look at me, uh, look at us. So the man gave his attention, expecting to get something. Peter said, silver and gold, I do not have what I have. I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Now, why does Luke want us to remember that in Acts 14? Because what he's trying to show us is that Paul's apostleship is every bit as important, every bit equal to Peter's apostleship. He's trying to show us by showing an almost identical miracle done by Paul as was done by Peter earlier. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Peter had done, what Paul had done, rather, they shouted in the Lyconian language. Uh, in those days, about everybody spoke Greek. By the way, that was the the lingua franca, the language of the of of business of the world, and they spoke their own native tongue. So, in Lyconian, which apparently Paul and Barnabas did not understand, when the crowd saw what Paul had done. They shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Now, do you notice something important here? This miracle did not produce faith in Jesus Christ. It produced more faith in a false religion. It produced more faith in a false religion. They looked at Paul and they looked at Barnabas and said, oh, there's Zeus and Hermes. 
false gods, and we're ready to sacrifice to them. One writer said, the crowd, as crowds often do, woefully misinterpret the healing power they witness. Luke knows that the power is an ambiguous phenomenon. The gospel is not simply about power, but about the power of Christ. Power, even for good, is liable to misinterpretation and misunderstanding. Both believers and unbelievers may mistake the gospel for magic or divine omnipotence. Dramatic healings are sure to draw a crowd in Lystra or on Sunday morning television for all the wrong reasons. As we've seen many times, as we've studied, that signs and wonders and miracles are not always from God. And we see many times they can be Satan's deceptive deception to many people. And we see here this miracle of seeing this man crippled from birth stand up and walk leads people to a false religion instead of to the truth. Warren Wiersbe said, miracles by themselves do not produce either conviction or faith. They must be accompanied by the Word of God. Now, we've talked about this many times, so I don't want to spend a lot of time. I don't have a lot of time this morning to do that. But I just want to remind you to look at Luke 16, verses 27 to 31. The story, not the, not the parable, because I don't believe it's a parable. If it is, it's the only one that names an actual person. The story of Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man is in torment. And said, please, said, please send Lazarus to Abraham. Please send Lazarus to my family so they won't come to this place. And Abraham said, I can't do that. There's a great gulf fixed and he can't go there. So the rich man said, well, if somebody, do, do, send some kind of sign or wonder or miracle to them, to, to, to my family, so they don't come to this awful place. And do you remember what Abraham said? They have Moses and the prophets. What is Moses and the prophets? What is that? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. They have the Old Testament because that's all they had at that time. The New Testament was only being written. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, the word of God is more powerful, more important than signs and wonders and miracles. Oswald Chambers, in a recent devotional said this faith based on experience is not faith faith based on god's revealed truth is the only faith there is because here's a here's a wonderful miracle here's a wonderful sign and wonder this man who had never walked is able now to walk and people say oh we want <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas is God. We want to put our faith in Jesus Christ. No, they don't. It leads them in the wrong direction. It leads them in the wrong direction. 
So the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Now, now what is behind this? It's, there's an interesting story behind this, and I've got to quickly try to, to get through this. About 50 to 100 years earlier than this, Ovid, the poet, he had told of a legend about Zeus and Hermes who came in human form to Lystra. They went to 1,000 homes, were rejected by those homes, they were received only by an older peasant couple named Philemon and uh, Baucis, and they accepted them into their home. And all the people that rejected them were destroyed, whereas Philemon and Baucis were abundantly rewarded. Their cottage became the temple, they became priests and priestesses, and they didn't die but became great trees. That was this legend. So these people in Lystra are saying, we're not going to make that mistake again. We're not going to make that mistake again. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes, they rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown, him kind, shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their season, he provides you with plenty of food, fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. One writer said, not only did Paul and Barnabas expose themselves as human to a crowd determined to make them gods, but they dared call this great honor a worthless thing. In fact, the entire pagan system of worship is a worthless thing, worthless thing from which people must turn to find the real God. The real God is a living God. Zeus and Hermes were lifeless figures of someone's imagination. The real God is the creator God who made everything in heaven, on earth, and the sea. The real God is the kind God who provides rain and crops and food and brings joy to human hearts. To people who pay attention to the created universe, rain and food are visible testimony in every generation to the existence, power, and goodness of God. In other words, to summarize what Paul and Barnabas preached, Paul specifically preached, to these people of Lystra who were pagans without an Old Testament understanding, without any understanding of the Scripture, they shared with them the truth that God can be seen in the world around us. It's called natural revelation. Natural revelation. There's so many places that we could turn. Let me give you... I'll read one for you and ask you to look up the other on your own. It's in the book of Romans. The book of Romans chapter 1. 
where Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. And so the natural question that you and I might ask at this point is, well, how has God made it plain? How has God revealed Himself? How has God made Himself known in our world apart from His Word and apart from His Son? How has God made Himself known in our world? Verse 20, For since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. In other words, any place in the world a person can look up to the sky and see this marvelous creation and ask themselves, why is it here? And how did it get here? Why is it here and how did it get here? Sometime on your own, look up Psalm 19. Psalm 19 makes the same argument. Makes the same argument. You and I, any person anywhere in the world can know there is a God through natural revelation. Now, natural revelation isn't enough to save. Okay, A person will not be saved by national, uh, natural revelation but if someone responds to natural revelation, God will see that he'll send somebody to them who will give them specific revelation through, from the word of God about Jesus Christ, God's son. Amen. You know, this, this is uh, really exciting, but many times uh, tribes, Stone Age tribes that have had little or no contact with the outside world, when a missionary would come into their village, the, the villagers would say to them, we knew that you were coming. See, when somebody responds to natural revelation, God will provide specific revelation about His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying to these folks. Now, That, that clock's got to be going too fast. Uh, <laughs> let me just mention uh, four of the natural arguments about the existence of God that come out of natural revelation. There's the cosmological argument. Uh, if you've never heard of these and you'd like to do more reading about it, I'll, I'll, next week in our recap, I'll put in some resources that you can go to and learn. But these are rationalistic arguments for the existence of God. Cosmological argument is the argument from cause and effect. The universe is here. The universe began. There must have been an adequate cause for it to begin. There must have been an adequate cause for it to begin. So anybody who looks at this universe can ask, where did it come from? What could be big enough to cause this universe? That's the argument from cause and effect. There's the teleological argument. That's the argument from design and purpose. Everywhere you look in the world, you see design and you see purpose. That means there must be a designer with will. There must be a designer with will. That's the teleological argument. There is the... But, oh, there's so much more. I'm, I'm summarizing this to the point of 
making the word scream. There's the anthropological argument. Where does our moral nature, where does conscience come from? Where does man's moral nature, where does conscience come from? The idea of good and bad, good and evil, is universal. It's universal. Where does it come from? And finally, the fourth argument that I don't, I guess you've got to be a real philosopher to understand this argument. It's called the ontological argument. I love this one. Um, I'll let you, I'll just read the, I'll read this formulation of it and let you struggle with it. Okay, <laughs> here's the ontological argument. And I quote, Since man has the idea of a most perfect being and that idea must include the existence such as such a being, God exists. Want me to say that again? <laughs> Since man has the idea of a most perfect being, and that idea must include the existence of such a being, God exists. That's the toughest argument, I think, the philosophical argument, the ontological argument. The nature of all religion, apart from Christianity, is to confuse the creation for the Creator. The nature of all religion apart from Christianity is to confuse the created for the Creator. There's always in all religion apart from Christianity an anthropomorphic concept of God. That, what does that mean? It means that man tends to make God in man's image. Man tends to make God in man's image. So that's why you see these, these, uh, these so-called gods, these idols, they are uh, uh, outsized humans, so to speak, with all of the passions of humans gone awry. Because man has a tendency to make God in, his, in man's own image. God is the work of man's hands. Uh, there's so many places, and I, I, I wish we could turn, but we can't. Please look up Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 to 20, where Isaiah talks about idols. There's many places in Isaiah. Also, Psalm 96 talks about idols. But Isaiah says something so funny. He said a, a, a woodcutter will take a piece of wood and he'll cut a, he'll cut a piece off and he'll make an idol out of it, and he'll bow down to that idol, and he'll lift it up and carry it somewhere else because it can't move on its own. It can't think. It can't do anything. And then he takes the other half of the wood that the idol came from, and he burns it in the fire to make supper over. How does that make any sense? Isaiah 2.22 said, Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? All religion apart from Christianity makes God in the image of man. Every religion apart from Christianity has a works salvation. A works salvation. You must work 
to earn God's favor. Christianity alone is based upon grace that God gives his favor to those who don't deserve it. God gives his favor to those who don't deserve it. Well, as you might imagine, verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby to do it all over again. What would they think of our generation? You and I have a lot more to do in 2020, and it's not just a slogan. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for being a powerful, living God whose glory is reflected in this world and whose reality can be seen as we look around at all that is made. Thank you for offering us a salvation that we could not earn and do not deserve by simply putting our trust in your son we can have eternal life abundant life now life with you forever we can become part of your family and we can pass from death to life never never having to be concerned with death again knowing we'll be with you knowing that we'll have a life worth living. Help us to share with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Scott.